So this is the last in our series looking at the seven churches in the book of Revelation. So the book of Revelation starts with letters written um, from, from Jesus, the risen Lord Jesus, to seven churches across Asia Minor. And it's probably been said that these churches are thought by commentators to function kind of representatively. Okay, so that means that as we read about these churches, what we're seeing are the kind of characteristic um, pitfalls and strengths and, and failures that kind of are encountered generally characteristically in churches. And so what we're to do as we're to read these letters is to be thinking again and again, is this us? Do we fail in this way? Do we succeed in this way? They're meant to represent us. So um, as we read these letters, one of the things that um, in each of the letters it says again and again is this phrase, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So that's what we're meant to be asking. Holy Spirit, what are you saying to us as we read these letters? This is a, generally a quite a good Bible reading principle. Um, it, what, it was, what are you saying when you read the Bible and you hear God speak to people through the different stories, we ask ourselves, are you saying that to me as well, God? Are you saying that to me? So I wonder what your experience has been of as we read through these letters. How has God spoken to you? And I wonder, and I'm talking very much from my experience here, whether our experience of reading these letters or our experience often of reading the Bible generally is that it doesn't feel like it comes very close to home. It doesn't really feel like we see ourselves there. It doesn't feel like it's scratching where we're itching. Has that been your experience of reading these seven letters to the churches? Let me put it a bit provocatively. I wonder whether when we read letters to the churches like this, when we read the Bible, our experience is the opposite experience to what we normally have when we read our star signs. <laughs> now, I don't know if you read your star signs, but maybe, I'm sure like, we, you've had a look through the kind of horoscope columns in the newspapers just for fun. And I wonder whether your experience has, has been like this. So you're reading your star signs, say you're a, I'm a Pisces, okay? And I read something like, um, you have a way about you, a gift for seeing things through despite the obstacles in your way. You also have a desperate need to be liked. So you have been wounded more often than you will admit. And you think to yourself, yeah, that's, that's very true. I am like that. But then you realize you read the Gemini column by mistake. <laughs> And so you go and read the Gemini column and you read what that says and you think again, mm, yeah, that is very true. I am like that. But then a thought occurs to you and you read through all the star signs and it turns out you can see yourself in every single one of the star signs. So why is that? Why is it that when you read the star signs you can see the kind of diagnose, diagnosis it makes and it seems to ring true for you? And yet, when you read the Bible, when you read these seven letters to the churches, it doesn't. What's going on there? Well, I think what's going on is that the Bible tells us the truth about ourselves, and star signs don't. And it means 
we don't know ourselves very well at all. We don't know ourselves very well at all. We can't see ourselves as we are. And that's why when we read the Bible, often it seems like it kind of goes over our head. It misses us. It doesn't hit us. Because we have this kind of skewed perspective on ourselves. I mean, we know we have a skewed perspective, don't we? We realize that fairly quickly. Remember the first time you heard the sound of your voice recorded? And you think, that's not me. I didn't sound like that. Or when you go to a, um, a dressing room mirror and you see the kind of, you know how they have the mirrors so that you can see yourself from different angles. And the first time you see yourself from a slightly different angle, it's slightly shocking, isn't it? We have a very skewed perspective on ourselves. But we also, this isn't a neutral perspective. The tendency is, is that we think of ourselves a lot better than we have any right to. We think of ourselves much more highly than we think we should. Psychologists, maybe 30, 40 years ago, used to think that one of the main problems with um, in psychotherapy and that is that we have a really low self-esteem and that to address that you need to help kind of validate people and help them to, to think more better than themselves than, than they currently do. But now psychologists think very differently about that. There's, I don't know if you've read any work by a guy called um, uh, Kahneman. Um, he wrote a book called Fast and Slow Thinking. And it's based, he, he won a kind of Nobel Prize for this work. And he writes about how we kind of characteristically deceive ourselves. So he talks about all these kind of biases in the way we think and the way we assess information and the way we read situations. And one of the things that comes up again and again is that we have what they call a self-serving bias. We have a self-serving bias. So we flatter ourselves routinely. So one guy who is kind of summarizing this work, he says this. He says, The last 30 years' worth of research shows just about all of us think we are more competent than our co-workers, more ethical than our friends, friendlier than the general public, more intelligent than our peers, more attractive than the average person, less prejudiced than people in our region, younger-looking than people the same age, better drivers than most people we know, better children than our siblings, and that we will live longer than the average lifespan. And you might think, no, I don't think that. But probably what that means is you think you're more honest (laughs) with yourself (laughs) than the average person. We tend to think of ourselves in a way that kind of flatters ourselves, that makes us think better of ourselves than the the way we really are. And this is why often the Bible doesn't hit home. Our skewed perspective means we kind of dodge it. And we, it doesn't speak to us in the way it should. Hebrews describes the word of God as like a double-edged sword, penetrating even to dividing soul, spirit, joints and marrow, judging the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. And what that means is when we read the Bible and we don't feel judged, when we read the Bible and we don't feel cut to the heart, probably what that means is we're kind of ducking and diving. We're hiding from it. We're letting it go over our shoulders. And so if that's your experience of reading the Bible, that doesn't seem to hit home. It doesn't cut you to the heart. When you read these letters, you don't feel convicted. Then this last letter 
this letter to the church in Laodicea is for you. You really need to hear this. And I really need to hear this. I duck and dive when I read the Bible. You know what I do? This is a bit embarrassing. When I read the passage, very often, the first thing I do when I read from the Bible is I think, oh, I know, if I was doing a sermon on this, I'd have three points. I'd use this illustration, this illustration, this illustration. What am I doing? I'm ducking and diving. I'm hiding from the Bible. Maybe you read the Bible and you think, oh, I know someone who really needs to hear this. (laughs) Maybe when you feel convicted, straight away you think of examples where it doesn't apply. Maybe you think, no, I'm, I'm not a selfish person because a few weeks ago I, I did this for someone. Or, no, I, I, I pray. I, I prayed quite a lot a few weeks ago. <laughs> All the time. As soon as you feel convicted, you think of an example, a way to kind of justify. You're ducking and diving. And so we really need to hear this last letter. Laodicea is a church with a very skewed perspective of itself. And so Laodiceans are like you and I. And Jesus here tries to expose them to the way they really are and help them see what a terrible and terrifying situation this is to be in, the situation where you're hiding from yourself. And so let's read the letter. And what I want us to see as we read it is the one who sees what he sees and what he offers. So this is the letter to the church in Laodicea. These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, I do not need a thing. But you do not realize you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich. And white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness. And salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. Those who I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. So, the one who sees, what he sees, what he offers. First of all, the one who sees. So, this letter is a letter to a church with a very skewed perspective of itself. And it starts with a reminder of the one who speaks and who alone has a true perspective, who alone sees things as they really are. He's introduced as the Amen. Amen literally means truly. You remember in the Gospels, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you. He's saying, Amen, Amen. This is the one who is true. He says, he is the faithful and true witness. He sees things as they are. 
And he is the ruler of creation, the judge of the world, the one who sees things as they are and the one who judges truly. Perhaps not surprisingly, given our tendencies, people, lots of people would deny this idea of a judge, a judge who judges truly, one who has a true and authoritative and right perspective on things. But it's important to realize that without this, without a judge, without one who says this is true and good and right, then everything becomes meaningless. If there's no one who says this is good, this is bad, if there's no better and worse, then everything becomes meaningless. Nothing matters anymore. One guy who put this really powerfully was a playwright called Arthur Miller, who was famous. He married Marilyn Monroe. And he wrote all these plays in America. And he was really interested in this idea of perspective. At school, I had to study a book, one of his books called A View from a Bridge. Um, and, And the thing they taught us was that his big idea was perspective. And he'd given up on the idea of God, but he realized the implications of this. Let me read what he says. It's really powerful, actually. He says, um, for many, he talks, he's talking about himself here in a kind of biographical play. He says, for many years, I looked at life like a case at law. It was a series of proofs. When you're young, you prove how brave you are or smart. Then what a good lover then a good father. Finally, how wise or powerful or whatever. But underlying it all, I see now there was a presumption that one moved on an upward path towards some elevation where, God knows what, I would be justified or maybe even condemned. Whatever a verdict. He says this, I think now that my disaster really began when I looked up one day and the bench was empty. No judge in sight. And all that remained was the endless argument with oneself. This pointless litigation of existence before an empty bench, which of course is another way of saying despair. See what he's saying? He's saying we all live as if our lives matter. We all live as if there's a good way to live and a bad way to live. That kindness and compassion is better than cruelty and neglect. But if there's no true perspective, if there's no true and faithful witness who says, this is good, this is good, then it all becomes meaningless. It becomes an empty argument with yourself, just one skewed perspective over another skewed perspective. The pointless litigation of existence, that is he called it. Now, some people would prefer that idea to an idea of a judge, a judge who says, perhaps condemns us and says, this is not good. There's some philosophers are quite honest about this. One, one um, Aldous Huxley, he once acknowledged, he says, the pure love of truth is always mingled with the need consciously or unconsciously felt by even the noblest and most intelligent philosophers to justify a given sort of personal or social behavior. He's saying that we all kind of try and project onto reality what we want about ourselves. And for him, for him, he decided very early on that it would suit him better if there was no judge. He says, for myself, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation. 
liberation from a certain political and economic system and liberation from a certain system of morality. Aldous Huxley wanted life to have no meaning and therefore found it very easy to believe that there was none. He denied the idea of a judge so that he could live how he wants. But you see, it's just another way of deceiving yourself. It's just another way of deceiving yourself. It's just another way of seeing things the way you want to see them in order to make yourself feel better about yourself. But there are other ways to dodge the verdict, other self-serving delusions we indulge in, even if we pay service, lip service to the fact there is a judge. And this is what Jesus sees at Laodicea. And what he sees actually is terrible. Let's, he notice, first of all, his reaction to what he sees at Laodicea. He says, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. That last phrase, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth, it's really kind of visceral language. That spit literally means vomit. He's saying, I look at you and you make me queasy. You make me want to puke. It's really, really strong language. So what is so terrible? What's so terrible? What is it that he sees that makes Jesus sick? Can you just see, first of all, two things I don't think it is. So often this passage is interpreted in terms of the church's lack of zeal. And you can see why this phrase, um, lukewarm, I wish um, you were either hot or cold, but because you were lukewarm, neither hot or cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. So we use that phrase lukewarm in terms of a kind of lack of enthusiasm, being half-hearted, lack of zeal. And this is an interpretation favoured by preachers. But commentators have a real problem with this. And one of the problems is, well, the main problem is that Jesus says he would prefer them to be cold. <laughs> He'd prefer them to be cold than to being lukewarm. And that's quite a hard thing to understand. If it's about zeal, if it's about zeal, why would he prefer them to have no zeal to some zeal? And preachers say often there's more hope for people who are hostile to the gospel than those that are indifferent to it. And that's definitely true, but I don't think that's what he's saying here. The other thing is not, is a reaction to how he describes them in the second half of verse 17. He says, you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. But I don't think that's what makes Jesus sick. This is a terrible, terrible description. But it's a terrible description that's not particular to the Laodiceans. It's a terrible description that I think applies to all of us, apart from Jesus. Being naked is a metaphor for guilt and shame. All of us, each one of us, stands before this holy judge, the one who sees things as they really are, the one whose penetrating gaze cuts through all of our pretenses and exposes our guilt and shame. All of us stand before God naked. And all of us are poor and pitiful. That's describing our impotence before this judge. We have nothing to kind of, um, nothing to, to, to change our, we can do to change our condition or deal with our guilt. We have no spiritual resources to draw on. We're impotent, we're bankrupt, we're spiritually bankrupt. And we're blind. We can't see ourselves the way 
we are. We hide from ourselves. This is a description of all humanity before God. Naked, blind, pitiful, poor. It's terrible, but it's not unique to Laodicea. No, what Jesus finds so disgusting is their complacency. Their self-satisfied security in their own spiritual achievement. They say they're rich and they've done it on their own. And beyond that, they need nothing. Laodicea had lots of reasons to think really highly of itself. It was probably the wealthiest city in the region. It had a kind of really flourishing um, commercial center. It made these beautiful clothes from this unique wool they produced It had a banking industry. It had a medical school famous for this eye salve um, that that people used to travel for to get. And it was so self-sufficient that it was the only city able to rebuild itself with no help from Rome following a massive earthquake. So there's this historian called Tacitus, and he said, Laodicea rose from the ruins by the strength of her own resources with no help from us. So Laodicea was famous for its self-sufficiency, for its wealth, for its commerce. And all of this meant they were particularly effective at deluding themselves that they had it all together. Success and wealth really tends to do this. Tim Keller says, he says that success and wealth has a tendency to generalize. It has a tendency to generalize. So I know about this. I've got a PhD, which means that I know a lot about not very much. <laughs> okay? when, you, when you succeed in academia, what you, it's so specialized that what happens is you kind of come to know more and more and more about less and less and less until you know virtually everything there is to know about virtually nothing. But <clears throat> I forget this. I think that because I know a lot about not very much, people should listen to me about everything. <laughs> So, Nay will tell you, I know exactly the best way to bring up Anya. Anya was sick last night, and um, Nay thought she had a temperature, but I put my PhD hand on Anya's head, and I said, no, she hasn't got a temperature. Anyway, she was, she was sick. <laughs> um, I'll, tell, uh, I'll tell her about home... De- I'll even try to tell Nay about cooking, for goodness sake, <laughs> despite a very poor track record. So when you get success in a small area of life, it tends to generalize itself. You don't just, you're not just a successful businessman, you're a successful person. You're not just prosperous materially, you're prospering as a human being. Now, you don't have to be rich to delude yourself. We've got hundreds of ways of deluding ourselves. You can have a victim mentality that says, every, every bad thing that's happened to me has always been someone else's fault. We've got hundreds of ways of deluding ourselves. But Laodicea was rich, and it was deceived. It thought it was rich, but really it was poor. And this is what Jesus saw. And this is what he saw was so terrible. And he also saw that they needed to see this for themselves. They needed to see this for themselves. And so first he puts his finger on the one sore point, the one problem with Laodicea that they actually knew about. And that was their water supply. (laughs) So Laodicea was kind of built on this plateau about two miles away from the river. It was established because it was on a trade route, on a a road. Um, But it meant that their water had to be piped in 
Um, by the time it got to the city, it was tepid and disgusting. It had these pipes and all this silt and stuff accumulated in these pipes and actually made people sick. And about six miles to the north of Laodicea was a place called Hierapolis, where you can go to today. And it's this really wonderful thermal spa where people used to go for healing. And about um, 10 miles up the river was another city, Colossae, and there it was famous for its beautiful ice-cold mountain streams. So Colossae had this beautiful, refreshing, invigorating water. Hierapolis had this soothing, healing water. But Laodicea's water was lukewarm, and therefore it was useless and disgusting and made people sick. And Jesus says, this is what I think of you. This is what your complacency makes me feel. And it would have really hurt to hear this. I was thinking what metaphor he might use to describe Portswood Church. And it occurred to me during the AGM last week, actually. You know what he'd use, wouldn't you? You're a building with no roof. (laughs) (laughs) You're not inside, you're not outside. I wish you were one or the other. (laughs) That's good. I'm glad John's laughing. (laughs) But if he said that directly to us, there would be no hiding, there'd be no ducking and diving. We'd know he was talking to us. And it would hurt. It would hurt us. But we'd start to see the way we are. We'd start to see the way Jesus sees us. I said about Arthur Miller and his interest in perspective. He's got this another story called The Death of a Salesman. And it's about a traveling salesman called Willie Lohman who, during his travels, goes around and keeps on cheating on his wife. And all the time, he kind of justifies himself. He excuses his behavior. He says, it's because I'm lonely. I've had a hard life. My wife doesn't understand me. It doesn't mean anything. All of those things. All the time, he's justifying himself. He's got a son who idolizes him. He's called Biff. And one day, Biff comes across him in a room with a woman. And it's this most terrifying scene that makes you go cold as you read it. First of all, Willie kind of tries to justify his behavior. He says, now look, Biff, when you're older, you'll understand these things. But Biff just stares at him. He just looks at him. Then Willie starts to bully him a bit. Biff, I want you to forget about this. You hear me? And then Biff shouts, you liar, you phony, you fake, and he runs away. And Willie falls on his knees, and he's broken. And you see him there, naked and pitiful. And all of his rationalizations, all of his justifications, just fall away. Tim Keller uses this illustration. He says, when I read that scene, I just shiver. All of his excuses simply melt away before Biff's guileless, innocent eyes that can finally see things as they are. Willie sputters and spins, but his cynicism and self-deceptions and false justifications fall away, and he is left there soul-naked before those honest eyes. Jesus says to you and I, I know your deeds. I know you. I see through you. There's no hiding. I see you the way you are. And before the eyes of the faithful and true witness, we stand wretched, poor, 
pitiful, blind, and naked. And Jesus sees this, and he sees we need to see it for ourselves. We really need to see this for ourselves, how empty all of our justifications are, how naked we stand, how all of our attempts to clothe ourselves, to cover up our nakedness, just fall away before God's eyes. He says, those I love, I rebuke and discipline. Those I love, I rebuke and discipline. You see, he's not being cruel and malicious. He's showing us the truth about ourselves because he loves us. He's giving us what we need. In fact, what the Bible says is when we can't see it, when we're successfully hiding from ourselves, that is a sure sign of God's judgment on us. And when we become aware of our kind of moral ugliness and bankruptcy, it's a pretty sure sign of God's gracious work in our lives. Even to be aware of our blindness means Jesus is at work in us. Because until we see this, until we see the way we really are, we don't go to Jesus for help. We don't take what he offers us. We leave him, as it were, locked outside of our lives. So we need to see this because he's got what we need and he longs to help us. He's got what we need and he longs to help us. So you see what he offers? He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich, white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. He's got what we need. He's got white robes to cover our nakedness. White robes, in, in Revelation, these white robes come up quite quite a lot and it's about a standing before God it's about being able to stand there and not be ashamed anymore to be able to stand there dressed and looking beautiful acceptable clean clean of guilt no no nothing else to hide he's got gold this kind of status before God which means we can have true wealth and and not need to kind of justify ourselves anymore so much of what drives us in life is an attempt to cover ourselves up, an attempt to find gold, to find meaning and something substantial in our life. Maybe you do it religiously. Maybe it's because this is what drives your kind of attempts at religious activity, this attempt to kind of justify your, your, yourself before God. Maybe you can do it in, in terms of secular ways, like by trying to get success and wealth and that kind of way. All of these ways, so often, they're about us trying to hide, to cover up our nakedness, to stand there kind of complete. But Jesus says, come to me. The emphasis is on from me. Buy from me what you need. What does this mean? It means saying, Lord, my beliefs are incomplete. My service is tainted with selfishness. My affection for you is cold. My repentance is half-hearted. My best deeds compared to your standards are unacceptable garments. But Jesus Christ died the death I owed. Welcome me and love me and accept me for his sake. 
Hear that song. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Saviour, all I die. So we need to see our nakedness. So we come to Jesus, and he gives us what we need. So he has what we need. And then we come to perhaps the most beautiful verse in this, um, in the whole of these uh, letters to the churches. He says in verse 20, Here I am. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Jesus here says, I have what you need and I want to be with you. I want friendship with you. It's amazing, isn't it? This same church who made Jesus feel sick, who he says, I want to vomit you out of my mouth. Now he says, I'm at the door knocking. Welcome me in. I want to be with you. I want fellowship and friendship with you. It's a beautiful picture of Jesus, of his patience as he stands outside this church who had shut him out with their complacency. He's there patiently knocking at the door, asking to be welcomed in. And this church who Jesus presents as pitiful and poor and naked, you have here the ruler of the universe, the ruler of creation, the king of the king of the world, saying, I want to be with you, poor, pitiful beggars. It's amazing. It's like a fairy tale, except in fairy tales, what happens is the king comes to the door of the beggar and whisks him off to his palace. Here, the king comes into the beggar's hovel and eats with him. Jesus wants to come into your life and be with you and fellowship with you. And until you see this, until you see this, you won't be able to really be honest with yourself. You won't be able to really be honest with yourself. It's really good, actually, practice to have someone who is honest with you, who says to you the way you are, who, I don't know if you've got that kind of relationship with anyone, where you go up to them and say, look, just, just say, say it as it is. I want you to be really honest. And they might say to you, well, you've got really bad breath. (laughs) But you want them to go deeper than that and to show you exactly what the problems are in your life. And that's a really good thing to do. But until you see that Jesus wants to be with you and accepts you as you are and loves you despite your naked state, you won't be able to take what they say. You won't be able to take with what what they say. Maybe you'll react to that kind of criticism of you by kind of defensiveness. Maybe you'll criticize the way they criticize you. That's a sure sign of avoiding what someone's saying. Or maybe it will crush you and destroy you because to see you're naked in that way is a terrifying thing. Or it is until you realize that Jesus sees you that way and he loves you. And he wants to be with you. When you get that, when you get that, you don't, you don't have to take yourself very seriously anymore. <laughs> you can laugh at yourself. You can be free not to put up all these defensive, not to maintain appearances any longer. You can be free to be honest with yourself and see your pitiful, poor, naked state and say it's okay though because Jesus sees all of that 
and he loves me and he wants to be with me and he wants to be in my life. The letter finishes with a remarkable verse. It says, To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Jesus here is presented as the one who sits on the throne and rules the world. Why does Jesus have the right to sit on his throne? He earned it. He earned it. In Hebrews, it says, after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Jesus sits on the throne because he has earned the right to rule this world. How can we sit on the throne with him? Because he earned it. He earned it. He's earned the right for us to be there with him. I'm ruling the earth in glory and I want you to have everything I achieved because I achieved it for you. Jesus wants us there with him. Everything Jesus did, he did for us. And that's why he has these white robes for us. Because he was stripped naked. It's why he has gold because he became poor. It's why he has soul for our eyes so that we can see because he was blindfolded and beaten and people shouted at him, prophesy who's hitting you. He became naked so we could be clothed. He became poor so we could be rich. He was made blind so that we could see. And the more we realize our nakedness, the more deeply and powerfully we'll recognize Jesus' provision for us and his grace to us. This is why Jesus says, you need to see what I see. You need to see what I see so you can have what I have to offer you and so you can know my grace to you as I sit with you and eat with you. Let's pray.